This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, we have a recorded interview with longtime NBA executive and current president of MC Sports Consulting, Murray Cohen. We discuss his career in sales and some useful tips for students who want to break into the professional sports. I hope you enjoy. Well, we've had a lot of what I consider heavy hitters on the Center for Sports Studies podcast. Um, today, though, I think we're going from uh, Dave Kingman to uh, Roberto Clemente with uh, Pittsburgh's own Murray Cohen. So, wow. Murray, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. It took me days to think of that intro. I tell you what, Roberto Clemente, I, I actually was there for Roberto Clemente's 3,000 pit growing up in Pittsburgh. Probably the greatest player I've ever had. So, wow, what a great compliment. I'll take that. Absolutely. Well, it's it's our pleasure to have you on. I think you're the first, um, you know, high level executive we've had in, in a professional sport. We've heard, certainly have had some with with different teams, but for an actual league, you would be the first. And if you would just kind of walk us through your background, I know you started as a, as an intern. I think it was soccer, and then worked your way all the way up to to the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share. Uh, I grew up in the uh, the beautiful city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I went to the Robert Morris College at the time, now Robert Morris University. And uh, I wanted to be in the business of sports. They had a great business program and sport management program. We had great professors like Dr. Bill Sutton, Dr. Hardy, Dr. Sonoka, who really cared about the students. And uh, my dream job when I started is I wanted to work in marketing for the Steelers, Penguins, or Pirates. That was the dream job. Sure enough, junior year comes along. An internship opportunity opens up in ticket sales. For an indoor soccer team. And uh, my professor, Dr. Bill Sutton, said, hey, Murray, great opportunity for you to learn sales for a soccer team. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to be in sales. I don't want to be in soccer. He's like, do it. I'm like, no, I don't want to be in sales. I don't want to be in soccer. And Bill's a lot bigger than I am. And Bill, in addition to being a great professor and industry-known expert and sports business journal columnist, he actually is a history as a prison guard in Oklahoma. And that part of him came, came out a little bit. So he said, no, you're going to do this. And uh, thank goodness I did, because that internship completely changed my life. Day one of that internship, our general manager, a gentleman named Chris Wright, who now is the CEO of uh, Minnesota FC, a longtime president of the Minnesota Timberwolves, amazing guy, said, Murray, what do you want to get out of your internship? I said, you know what? I want to do such a great job in my internship. You offered me a full-time position. So sure enough, at the end of my junior year, they called me in and said, Murray, done such a great job with your internship. We're offering you a full-time AE sales position. So I literally, I turned pro before I even graduated from college. Unbelievable. And again, if I've been open-minded enough to go into sales, open-minded to take a sport like indoor soccer, uh, my career trajectory would have gone a very different direction. I love that story because I have kind of the same experience with one of with my students. So I, I come from a sales background, so it's comfortable for me, but I understand. And I think I was the same way at 2021, 20, 22, where they're just reluctant to get into sales for whatever reason it is. Yeah. Objection or sounding stupid or, or whatever until they actually do it and realize they can actually do it well. Sure. 
what was your experience like with that? Why, why were you a little reluctant to, to go into the sales side? There is a there is a perception of sales as that sleazy car salesman say anything, do anything to make a deal. And again, if I was actually having to sell vacuum cleaners every day, I would be a very depressed individual. But if I have the opportunity to go, what change is I get to go out and talk about sports. I have an opportunity to talk about memories and experiences and those kind of things. And that's completely different. So if it's a product or service that you're passionate about, that you believe in, that you would recommend to your friends, and then here's the key word, offer. I would not want to go out to all my friends and talk to them about life insurance or funeral plots. They would not, I don't think I'd make more friends that way. But if I could offer my friends, and I did this at the Pittsburgh Spirit, here's an opportunity for you to come down on the field after the game, and let's play a little indoor soccer. You buy this many tickets, and we'll make that happen for you. Like that kind of experience, game-changing. And again, throughout my entire career, it's like, if you can offer people an opportunity, then it's not selling. It's just having a conversation, and you can pay very well for doing it. So it's been a good life. Absolutely. And so what do you think for you? And I mean, you're a sports guy in, yeah. in too, but what do you think it is about sports that just kind of is that differential than any other product or service where, you know, people look at it and say, oh, wow, I would so much rather spend $1,000 on an experience at a game than a hundred bucks on a vacuum cleaner. I feel right now we need sports, real sports more than ever mm -hmm. with all the stuff going on politically in this country and, and all the challenges we have. You know, sports is that great unifier. I mean, I'm a, I'm in Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh, obviously a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. On Sunday, Pittsburgh Steelers football is religion. Like you don't see anybody out. Everybody's dressed in black and gold. I don't care if you're poor, rich, black, white, you know, whatever. Like it is the great unifier. And that's the cool thing about sports is we all can want to be like these amazing athletes. We all aspire. We don't have the skill sets or the talent or the speed but it's a thing that can bring people together. We're high-fiving your neighbors, hugging people, going crazy. We need that kind of entertainment and release and cathartic experience more than ever before. Oh, amen. And this, you know, it's certainly not a, a political statement and we don't get into that on, on this show, but yeah. you know, I am encouraged to see that fans are starting to come back for a number of reasons. I mean, one, you know, maybe it's showing that we're finally starting to get, you know, past the virus, but two, to your point, um, it is that great uniter. And I think we've had a year of a lot of strife. No question. In sports, it is that catalyst to kind of bring us back to the center a little bit. You know, Absolutely. And there's so much pent up frustration and demand mm -hmm. that the teams that have opened up, especially now the vaccines are more prevalent, that that's going to be the whole key to this thing. And uh, yeah, the, I feel like the industry come June, July will be as strong as ever before. And uh people miss it. You take something away from someone for over a year. It's hard. I mean, this day last year is when the first NBA player for the Utah jazz came down the NBA shut down the season and turned into a spiraling effect. So uh, absolutely looking forward to the future and bringing us all together. I totally agree with you. So that's a question. This is kind of more of a personal question because I've just done some research on this and just kind of wrote a paper with, with the economics and sport in a PhD program that I'm in. Um, so we're recording this on March 11th, as Murray said, one year ago with, with Rudy Gobert and the, and the Jazz is, is when things started to kind of unravel. But I don't know if I can accurately predict how fans will come back or how teams will react. I think fans are going to come back. I totally agree. What do you see teams doing? Are, are they going to kind of keep ticket prices the same because people have really been hit hard in the pocket? 
Or do you think they're going to try to increase a little bit just to recover a little bit of that lost revenue? You know, that's a great question. And it's going to be market by market. Those kind of decisions are going to be made. Some teams, it's fascinating, though. I live in the free state of Florida. Mm -hmm. Our governor says you can have 100% capacity, but you look at the Orlando Magic and they'll have 25%. The Miami Heat has about 20% right now. The uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, they've gone with zero fans, even though that our governor has said you can. So individually, each franchise is looking at things a little bit differently regarding health and safety. And you just don't want to be that place that had the bad breakout or that super spreader event from a PR standpoint. But when I talk to my friends at the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets have now have the ability to sell 1,800 seats. Obviously, they're going to price those seats up because it's supply and demand. So it'll be interesting to see what teams do from a pricing standpoint, from a demand standpoint. And I think it's going to be market by market. I don't think there's going to be one trend one way or the other. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. So what have maybe kind of been some of the trends that you've seen in just your consulting lately over this year? Because I do find it interesting. And maybe it is a PR thing. You talked about the Tampa Bay Lightning. You know, yeah. Florida has been open. I was down there with my family yeah. um, in December. Um, and it was kind of refreshing to actually go outside. But, you know, our team's kind of doing a risk reward analysis, I guess, where, you know, hey, we could bring in some revenue, but maybe the PR reputational and just safety hit isn't worth it. There's going to be sort of that middle zone between now and, and I'm going to say the end of June, just to be safe, okay. that there's going to be a cautious approach. For example, I talked to three teams in the state of Texas. The governor of Texas says you can go all in. Mm-hmm. But they're, all three of those are, are not comfortable pulling that out until that, you know, we get to herd immunity or something of that nature. But on the flip side, I talked to my good friend, Jake, call him Jake from State Farm. He's one of the best leaders in sports. He, Jake Mankin runs ticket sales for the University of Alabama. And Alabama announced they're all in, 100,000 fans, no social distancing. But they're also talking about a September start. So by September, and again, I think that's going to happen. I talked to my friends in Northwestern as well. Their state's been pretty locked down in Illinois. They're planning on full speed ahead, full stadium football. And I think that's when things turn the corner. When we go to full stadiums, all that excitement, those kind of fan groups, man, we miss it. We absolutely miss it. It'll be fascinating, though, to see what teams have learned from this. Right. For example, Zoom was like unheard of. Now it's commonplace. Now that we get back to you know a different sales process and working in an office, I think you're going to have more people work at home. I think there's going to be more teams. They're going to use Zoom to do more of the face-to-face kind of relationships, only then making 100 calls a day. you got to embrace things like texting. There's two products out there, one called ZipWhip and one called Vazi. One's one-on-one texting and one's mass texting. A team, a sports team or a college or university that doesn't have texting as a way to communicate with their fans is crazy because you're getting 10 to one better open rates than sending an email. So it'll be interesting to see what people learn from this process and how they incorporate that going forward. Some teams literally put their head in the sand. They released or furloughed most of their staff. And those teams are going to really struggle to get back up because to me, at the end of the day, you can have all the technology, you can have a great team, but if you don't have great people, you're going to suffer. It's all about the people. And how you connect with those people, I think you kind of absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And this is yeah. kind of something interesting. We're going to go a lot of different areas with, sure. with this conversation. So you know, I'm, I'm going to throw the script away. But you talked about you know texting, uh, great way to get a hold of people. 
they're not opening emails as much. What about cold calling? Because you know what we hear is that you know you're going to start an inside sales, you're going to smile and dial a hundred times a day. Is that still a useful way to get a hold of fans, or you know are these new technologies and how we're communicating with people? Do we need to start you know implementing those more and with teams? You know that's a great question, and quite frankly, it's one of those things that just drives me crazy mm-hmm. because anybody that thinks the best strategy from a time management standpoint or revenue maximization standpoint is to have a rep sit in a room, make a hundred calls a day. Uh, they should actually go work on the Flintstones because they're <laughs> not making any sense. Yeah. Like why in the world? Here's a classic one for you. I'm in a market and the salesperson says to me, you know, he's having, a, I'm listening to a sales call. It's going really well. He turns and says to the customer, you know what? I know you're interested. I know you're thinking about buying right now but I'm going to get yelled at unless I make seven more calls today. And it's, you know, I've got 10 minutes to jump in seven more calls. So let me get my seven more calls in and I'll call you tomorrow. We can try to finish the sale. Mm. Like how stupid is that? Why wouldn't we, if you're smart, you have a hundred single game buyer leads. Why don't you send them a text and ask three simple questions on a scale of one to 10? How's your experience? What can we do to make it better? How interested would you in be in buying a group or a season ticket plan? Wouldn't it make more sense if 10 people raise their hand and say, hey, I'm interested in a plan to call those people versus, you know, smile and dial 100 people? It's insane. And again, if you don't evolve, you die. And that's what's going to happen to some of these different sports organizations. They've been doing things the same way. They don't change and they're not going to be in business anymore. I'm thrilled to hear you say that just because, you know, with a, a former organization I was with, that was kind of somewhere where we would butt heads quite a bit. I'm like, listen, if I've got 10 awesome calls per day, it's going to get us so much more revenue than if I'm just calling 100 people, I got five minutes with them and I'm going to get a bunch of voicemails. So absolutely. hundred percent agree. I may send this podcast to them later. Um, <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Please do. I'd love to have that debate with them and see why in the world they're still doing it that way. Because I, I can help grow their business. And I love to. And that's what my company does. So happy to help. All right. Um, so let's kind of backtrack a little bit because I sure. want people to understand like who we're talking with in your experience. So, you know, you, you go to Robert Morris, you, you get in with indoor soccer and then tell us, kind of walk us through your career from there. Yeah. Uh, interesting story. So my junior year, I did an internship. Senior year, I go to school and I'm working full time as an AE. At the end of that season, the Pittsburgh Spirit indoor soccer team folded. Mm-hmm. So I get called into my boss's office. The, our owner, Mr. DeBartolo, who owned the 49ers as well, decided not to go forward with the indoor soccer team. So my boss, Chris Ray, calls me in and said, Murray, you are our best employee we had here. Anywhere I have a job, you have a job. So I'm like, hmm, I got that going for me, which is nice. So I'm thinking, <laughs> okay. Two weeks later, I get a call from Chris Wright. Murray, I've taken a new job, but I'm under contract still in Pittsburgh, so I can't tell you where it is. I can't tell you how much you're going to make, but I want you to be my director of ticket sales. And I'm like, okay, I just broke up with my college girlfriend. It's a good time to leave Pittsburgh. (laughs) I'm going to be a director of ticket sales. I'm 20 years old. I'm not even legal to drink. I'm like, heck yeah, let's go. So he says, come to my house. My wife, Walla, will have a map for you of what city to drive to. 
And sure enough, the other person in that driveway that he did the same thing with is a gentleman named Len Komorowski. Mm -hmm. And Len is the CEO of the Cleveland Cavaliers mm -hmm. and one of the absolute most brilliant people in this entire business. And Len, myself, Chris, we went off to the Minnesota Strikers. We're at 20 years old. I was a director at ticket sales, had no idea about leadership. I was a decent seller. It's like, okay, let's make you a leader. And uh, what a great experience that was. Wow. And then from there, so, I mean, and that's just a, a wild story. I love that. Yeah. From there, how long are you in Minnesota? And then what, was the, what were your next steps? Yeah, great question. So I'm in Minnesota for two years. We took a an, an mediocre team and just crushed it and turned sales around. So all of a sudden, it was like you see some of the college coaches at the end of the year. They're like the hot pro prospects. So for some reason, uh, here I am at 22 now. I'm the hot pro prospect. So I remember getting a call from the Dallas Sidekicks indoor soccer team. Uh -huh. We heard great things. We want you to come down and like run our sales team. They'd be great. Like we're going to fly you to Dallas. We're going to put you in a first class hotel, order anything you want, room service, whatever. We're going to take you out to dinner, meet the owner of the team and make you an offer. I'm like, okay. So I thought it was a trick. Uh -huh. So literally I get to the hotel. I didn't order anything. <laughs> and like, they picked me up. They're like, Hey, your bill is zero. Like, why didn't you have lunch or whatever? Like, why didn't you do anything? Like, no, you're checking to see if I'm going to be, you know, loose with my expenses. No, no, we're trying to hire you. We're trying to recruit you. So sure enough, they do. They give me an offer. I'm about to resign from my job and take a bigger role with the Dallas team. And all of a sudden I get a call from Tacoma and Tacoma says, Hey, I heard you're in Dallas. Before you accept that offer, come out to Tacoma. And I've never been to the West coast. I'm like, sure. Free trip. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So there's like, you want to be, you know, you want to be more, more well-rounded. So we will make you, you know, senior director of ticket sales plus marketing plus merchandise. I'm like, wow, I got three things under me. So I went out to Tacoma and uh, worked with that team. That led to an opportunity with the Seattle Mariners, which was one of the most impactful places that I've ever worked in my entire life. I was uh, one of the top sellers in Major League Baseball my second year with the Mariners. And my favorite story about that is our owner, Jeff Smullyan, called all the ticket salespeople into his office and said, guys, you're really pissing me off. I'm like, what's going on? What are we doing? I'm one of the youngest guys. He's like, you guys are selling way too many tickets. You're <laughs> making it very difficult for me to, to move the team to St. Petersburg, Florida. Mm -hmm. I mean, how great is that? The owner of the team calls the entire sales team. I'm the, I'm the youngest guy in the sales team at this point. And we're pissing them off because we're selling too many tickets. Fun times. Absolute fun times. That might be the, the only conversation in pro history that, that's ever had gone that way. No, I mean, crazy. At the Mariners had a unique dynamic where the, uh, the sales manager for the team uh, was one of those 100 call a day guys. Mm. And the vice president of sales for the team, a guy named John Thomas, who, again, is like one of my absolute mentors in this business. He went on to be the uh, president of the Houston Rockets. He was the president of the Minnesota North Stars. He was the president of the uh, Sacramento Kings and just an amazing guy. So there was a big conflict because I'm a face-to-face -face guy. I like to get in front of people, build relationships, not leave any money on the table. And my boss used to tell me every day, Murray, you suck as a salesperson. So that was his way of motivating it. And so it's, you know, interesting, different ways, different approaches, but uh the Mariners was an amazing experience, and uh, I absolutely—I was there for two years, and absolutely loved my time there as well. I like what you just said there at the end because that can kind of give us into a different conversation there. Because I think 
that's another thing that students kind of struggle with because they think they're going into a, uh, a sales outfit and you do, you got the, the alpha dog, a type personality who is like always on them and micromanaging. You didn't hit your numbers, didn't hit your numbers. Is that the way to go in sales? Is that the rule? Is it the exception or in your experience, what works? You know, Brandon, the, uh, the worst advice that I was given when I was a director of sales at 20 mm-hmm. was treat everyone the same. Mm. Absolute most horrendous advice you could possibly give you. With the analogy that I'll, I'll share about from a, the difference between tickets being a good seller and being a good leader is let me ask you this question. Currently, of the 30 NBA teams, how many of the NBA coaches right now were great players? Here we go. You tell me. Steve Nash with, with the Nets was a great player. Great player. Um, but boy, a lot just don't come to the top of your mind when you start thinking about it. Kind of the same thing if I start thinking about college coaches, there's maybe a handful. It's funny when you think about some of the best coaches in the NBA. I mean, Eric Spolstra mm-hmm. was a video coordinator. He didn't play. Yep. Pops, he wasn't a player in the NBA. Don't tell me Steve Kerr was a great player. He's won some championships, six man of the year. Doc Rivers, one-time all-star. So maybe you put Doc on that list, but Nash, absolutely. But the skill set between being a great player and being a great leader are completely different. So one of the best influences in my life was uh, a gentleman named Scott O'Neill. Scott O'Neill is the CEO of the, the Flyers and the Devils and just does an amazing job. And Scott's advice to me was always be curious, mm. always be observing, asking questions and being curious. And if you're not learning every day, you're going backwards. And that's the approach I had, you know, I'm 56 years old and literally I am so fired up to learn every day. I so enjoyed being, spending time with your students. You had two students that really got me fired up. I'm like, yeah, yeah. they're going to have a future and I can help them. So that's the kind of thing is like, how can you learn? How can you listen? How can you apply that? And then as a leader, how do you motivate someone to run through walls for you? And, and I got a couple of good examples and stories I can share with you if, if you want. Sure. Or we can go a different direction. Totally go with your flow. Sure. No, I'd love to hear kind of an, like an actual applied real life example. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So uh, fast forward a few years. Uh, I was uh, Seattle Mariners, uh, had a lot of success there. My boss at the Mariners, John Thomas, became the president of Minnesota North Stars, took me there. So I literally went to the Minnesota North Stars with him and ran the sales department for the North Stars. Then was involved in actually moving the team, relocating the team to Dallas. So you talk about a crazy thing. We had three months to hire an entire new sales organization in a new city that had no idea what hockey was all about. And we knew we were in trouble when we first got to Dallas, when there's only one sheet of ice outside of our building. And that was the Galleria Mall. So our team practiced at the Galleria Mall. People thought we... We advertised for a Zamboni driver. The Dallas Morning News did a survey of what is, what is Zamboni? And the number one answer in the survey was an Italian soup. <laughs> Again, starting up a new team in a new market. Unbelievable, amazing thing. But I uh, did that, worked for, spent some time in Dallas, then went off to work for a sports marketing agency in Seattle. And then fast forward, did a couple projects for the NBA and where I was the interim vice president of ticket sales for the Sacramento Kings did a project, the NBA sent me to Cleveland to actually, when LeBron happened, to embed myself and help lead their sales team, 
which was a great experience. I did some things in Detroit, but I got to the Orlando Magic and they had a horrible sales organization, some great leadership at the top, people like Alex Martins and uh, Chris Dorso and Matt Biggers, really, really talented people, but this, and Bobby Bridges, another great leader, but just didn't have very good sales culture, didn't have a sales organization. So I remember I rolled out my first big sales contest. I'm like, okay, you know, we're going to do a sales contest for the month of September. Whoever sells the most is going to get this beautiful big screen TV. And a rep just turned to me and goes, that sucks. Like, what do you mean it sucks? I just bought a big screen TV last month. So I'm like, wow, okay. So the next month we did some, a different contest. What we did, instead of Oprah's favorite things, we did Murray's favorite things. So that was, so we took an amount, say it's a thousand dollars. So if I asked you, if you won the contest and I gave you a thousand, you can you spend it on whatever you want. What would you buy? Tell me what you would buy. If I just gave you a thousand dollars, you want a contest, what would you buy today? I don't know. I'd probably have to give it to my wife and um, a bunch of home <laughs> furnishings is the right answer for me. I would love a new bike, but um, yeah. I only get a, a half a boat in that. I love it. Yeah. So again, some people set airline tickets to take a nice vacation. Yeah. I had one woman in our office say, I want some really cool shoes. Another guy said, I want golf lessons. Another person like, I want the big screen TV. So yeah. by making it personal, now all of a sudden, instead of motivating three people, every single person, not only did they do that, but they wrote up on the board, if I win, this is my prize. So they had this own self-intrinsic value. Like I have skin in the game. They care about me in that. And then I had the philosophy, you got to make it fun. So we did another contest and the winner of that contest could win up to $1,000 cash. So it's one thing to like, you win the contest and I just hand you a check, but we did a little bit differently at the Magic. We called it Win Bob's Money. Bob was our owner. So what we did is the three top sellers for that month, I put, I, gra- I got $1,000 in $1 bills we put it on a bunch of like wrestling mats. We brought the entire organization to watch this. And I double taped, double-sided tape completely like this, all three of the top sellers. So you have tape on this side and tape on this side. You're totally taped up. We played music and whatever stuck to your body is what you walked out with. And how great is that? What a great way from a culture standpoint yeah. to make it fun hard again it's it's about results at the end of the day but if you can make the environment fun and engage people they're going to give you that extra effort and uh, i was so proud of our team in orlando we uh, were recognized at the nba league meetings number one team as far as new season tickets most biggest increase in groups biggest increase in paid attendance uh for a team that didn't make the playoffs so it just shows you if you have the right culture the right attitude uh the right leadership and hiring the right people Uh, great things can happen. Well, I love that. And, and, you know, if other ticket managers are listening or any sales managers are listening, you you didn't necessarily come in there and maybe you did to a certain extent and didn't reinvent the wheel and here's new training and here's new things. It's changing the culture. Just make it fun. And I think if people like coming to work and enjoying what they're doing and they're really uh, fired up, they're going to work hard for you. But at the same time, you can't just, it can't just be, you know, fun and games. Right. So I'll, I'll tell you another quick story. My first week on the job in Orlando, I get a call from a season ticket holder. Where's my Dwight Howard autograph ball? I'm like, what do you mean? Why do we owe you a Dwight Howard? My rep promised me if I didn't renew my season tickets and renewed now in September, mm-hmm. he would give me a Dwight Howard autograph ball. 
because he would get paid as a new sale versus paid as a renewal. And mm-hmm. I was furious. And it happened again a second time. So, and, and what made things worse, this was one of our top reps. So I go sit down with our team president. I talk to HR. I'm like, I want to get this person out of here. And I remember them saying like, are you going to be able to hit your goal if you get rid of your top rep? And I said, if we have our top rep lacking integrity, we'll never hit our goal. Yep. So we did. We, we made the decision. We let that person go. We cl- Then I pulled the entire staff together and said, you know what? We had a situation, but I did a poor job of explaining what we expect. So myself and, and two of our other leaders in our team, we had a great you know, ticket sales leadership team. We came up with a list of expectations. Mm-hmm. And I'll just share a few of them for you. Number one, be on time. I come from a military family. My dad was in the military. On time is late growing up. When I got to the Magic, there are people, nine o'clock start time, people strolling at 9.05, 9.010, go to the break room, get a coffee, bowl of cereal, like not, no activity started before 10 o'clock. I'm like, what's going on? No, be on time. Another one is effort is expected and will be rewarded. We literally had reps not make phone calls because they would answer the incoming line. No, we came up with a hustle board. So you get 10 points for a face-to-face meeting, five points for a call with a manager, one point for a call. And the people that had the most points got to answer the incoming line for a day. Like we had to figure out how do we change things up? Like be a good teammate when they're calling for another, for another rep, you got to treat that customer like that's your customer. And then here's the other one is results matter. At the end of the day, if you don't put up results, like you could be the nicest person in the world and the best teammate, but at the end of the day, our job is tasked with driving the revenue for this team. So again, by just making it crystal clear, I had the 10 expectations and everybody signed them. It changed the entire culture. And then add the fun plus the accountability. When you can bring that all together, then you've got an opportunity to, to do something really special. That's a mark of a good leader too, is to be introspective, right? And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. so, you know, maybe there was something I wasn't doing right. Let's get Absolutely. on the same page and, and let's go. That's right. 100% agree. So um, sports aren't all, um, or, or at least the sport business side, it, it's not all work. I am kind of interested because you've had a varied background and you've been in some really high level meetings. Maybe what have some, been some of the best perks or maybe some people you've met where you're like, I can't believe I'm in this room right now. I feel that way quite a bit, quite Frank. You know what? No, actually, I, I, I'll say yes, but no. Okay. Like, I don't get awestruck. Any, like, I've been around so many like famous athletes and hung out with so many famous people and things like that. It's like, okay, yeah, there's LeBron. Okay, hey, hey LeBron, what's up? Hey, Kobe, how you doing? Good to see you again. Or Where's Wayne Gretzky? Have a chance to meet Wayne Gretzky and hang out with Wayne Gretzky. Super nice guy, just absolutely amazing guy. Like, so again, I don't get awestruck, but on the business side, this is a crazy story. So I'm with the Minnesota North Stars. Our owner, Norman Green, calls myself and Matt Colford into a room. Matt was in charge of sponsorship. I was in charge of tickets. Pat Hoffman was our CFO. Pulled the four of us together. Said, boys, we got to move the team. Right now, we've sold out every game. I'm like, yeah, it's great. Our ticket revenue is up 100%. That's my area. I'm like, heck yeah, we're doing great. But our player costs are up 200%. Huh. 
So we had someone on the player side just give up ridiculous contracts constantly. Mm -hmm. So like our revenue was going like this, but there was no way we could keep up with our player costs. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can do that is reset it because you can't take someone who's paying $80 a ticket and move them to 180. But if you go to a new arena, a new situation, now that seat can be a lot higher because it's not that boom, move up. So he literally says, okay, Murray, you're going to Dallas. So I go, they fly me down to Dallas. There's a meeting with the sports council and I'll never forget it, but Jerry Jones is in the meeting. Roger Staubach is in the meeting. Ross Perot Jr. is in this meeting. Jimmy Johnson is in this meeting. And I'm looking around like, there's one person that does not belong. <laughs> and I remember Jerry selling this. He goes, you got to sell ringside seats. You know, the, just like boxing, the first row. And I'm a hockey guy. I'm like, the first row sucks from a, chance, from a hockey view. But, but again, he knew like being on TV is a big deal. You could sell that for a lot of money, especially in Dallas where people want to be seen. Uh, it was amazing. And then he actually told us the story of why he fired Jimmy Johnson and hired Barry Switzer, which was hilarious. Do you, do you know why he did that? I have no clue. And I've wondered that for years as a kid growing up in the eighties and nineties and watching the Cowboys just destroy everybody. Like, why would you get rid of, you know, the coach? Because Jerry, as the general manager of the team said, I picked the groceries yeah. and Jimmy as the coach of the team is like, we don't win championships without me coaching. And it was one of those situations, that class of the Titans. So the reason why Jerry hired Barry Switzer is Barry's one of the few guys that beat Jimmy Johnson in college. And he knew, not that he was the greatest coach out there for the Cowboys, he knew it would piss off Jimmy. And sure enough, Barry won a Super Bowl with, with Jerry's talent. And, you know, the rest is history. So Bill Parcells was right about the whole Thomas Grocery quote. You got to be able to pick the groceries. But the guy that blew me away in that meeting was Roger Staubach. Really? And that guy was the most humble, smart, just great businessman, caring guy. I was like, because he's like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Pittsburgh. He goes, oh, we had a few games against those Steelers. Like, but he's like down to earth, like asking all about me and my family. And uh, we wound up rent renting our office space in his building. And he was great about introducing people. And, uh, and one other memory from that whole Dallas experience that was pretty funny is I had a chance to go out and sell Troy Aikman season tickets. Wow. Troy's person was like, hey, Troy is excited. He wants to get tickets. He and Daryl Moose Johnson want to sit together. Can you, take, can you take care of them, get them good seats? They'll pay, but they just want to get good seats. But that was my favorite upsell of all time. So I'm talking to Troy. And Moose Johnson, again, two amazing class act people, great, great human beings, uh, sitting there in a room, and I'm not even 30 years old or whatever. And I was like, you know what? You got to take care of the people that take care of you. Why don't you buy 10 season tickets in front of you for your five offensive linemen? And they go, great idea. So we turned a four season ticket opportunity and selling 14 season tickets. And uh, another one is like, why am I in this room? Like, I do not belong to be here. <laughs> but I'm loving every minute of it. Well, it's like I talk with my sports sales class. You know, if you don't ask a question, it's always no. And that's that was a pretty harmless question to ask, you know, yeah. anything where you're pushing, it's like, hey, you know, have you thought about these guys? And, you know, to them, probably a couple more thousand dollars. Yeah, sure. You know, heck keep, yeah. Keep and them I got to tell the you, turf, the, yeah. 
the, uh, the smartest person that I've ever met in the entire sports industry without question was David Stern. Yeah. David Stern is, uh, and again, it just gives me goosebumps spending time with that guy because he, he's like, everyone else is playing checkers and he's playing chess. Mm. I mean, he's always one step above. So this is an interesting story. So I was told, I was a director at the NBA league office. And I was told by my boss, if you ever get a call from David, he will pick up the phone and call a director. Most commissioners aren't going to hack. They're going to go through the chain of command. Not David. If he sees something in one of your reports or hears something, he's going to pick up the phone and call you. Mm-hmm. But if he calls you on a weekend, you're fired. So sure enough, you know, I'm, I, the phone's ringing, whatever. I go answer the phone. It's a Saturday afternoon, about two o'clock. And I answer the phone. I'm like, hi, hi, this is Murray. It's a New York number. It's like, hey, Murray, it's David. I'm like, David, David. Like, who is this guy? Who, who's David? Because David Stern. I'm like, commissioner. He goes, no, call me David. I'm like, commissioner. He's like, when are you going to be back in New York office? I said, when do you want me in the New York office? He goes, Tuesday would be good. And when are you, t- I'll, I'll set it, well, I'll talk to my assistant, whatever, and uh, we'll get you a time schedule. Uh, let me look at my calendar. He goes, I'd like you to be there for at 11.27. Sort of a weird time. Okay. So I call my boss, like, David wants to meet with me. Like, is it, am I, I'm going to be fired? Like, because the meeting ends at 11.30. Mm. Three minutes. So I'm like, this is bad. Yeah. So I call my boss at the time and say, no, Mar- we told great things about you. You're doing an amazing job. Group sales. You're in charge of group sales for the NBA. It's at an all-time high. He loves what you're doing in the NBA, WNBA, and the D-League. like, no, he just wants to get to know you. I'm like, for three minutes? I'm like, okay. So I go in there, and he goes, he looks at me. He goes, all right, I hear you're the group sales guru. Yeah, I'm pretty good at what I do. He goes, okay, teach me group sales. And he just sits back. So, like, I've done training sessions for, you know, thousand different teams i'm sitting one-on-one with the commissioner of the nba and like holy mackerel so i literally just okay let's do my thing and he turns to me he goes murray that was really uh simple i'm like no it's really good like it works like all this he goes no 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 i like simple simple mm-hmm. is good and it just blew me away and we're like 20 minutes in and like i'm still in the office and whatever so and then i finished whatever he goes you know what murray this is really great i learned so much from you like what questions do you have for me? Like, here's my chance. So I'm like, so I'm like commissioner Stern. He's like, call me David. I'm like commissioner Stern. What's the key to your success? Mm -hmm. And he said, the relentless pursuit of perfection. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so wait a minute. Like you never get to perfection. He's like, exactly. He's like, you don't want people to get to a place where they get fat, dumb, and happy. Mm-hmm. So it, wherever it is, it could always be better. I'm like, wow. Okay. I'm like, okay, give me another core philosophy <clears throat> that you have as a leader that I can learn from you. He's like, okay, I'll give you another one. If you and I agree all the time, one of us doesn't need to be in the room. Yeah. And I'm like, because so many people were so intimidated by, by David Stern, and he say something, they wouldn't push back. What he wanted is if he felt there's a better idea out there, he wanted that kind of dialogue and debate because if you take what he has and, and you can make it better. So he did not like yes men. He did not like yes sir, yes men. He wanted people that are confident in their own beliefs that would go back. So I'm like, okay, I got two questions and I'm on a roll. And like, okay. So David, what, what else, you know, I mean, have been some of your, you know, greatest lessons learned. He looked at his watch and goes, 
you know, you've exceeded your time by 30 minutes. Get the hell out. (laughs) Okay. I'm friends with the commissioner now. Yeah. Wow. That's just, I mean, you think about that as an inner city kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that first person in their family to ever go to school. And here I am sitting one-on-one with the commissioner of the NBA. And uh, again, that's the beauty of this business and the sports and the relationships. There's absolutely nothing like it. And a lot of people are asking me, what am I most proud of? And there's two, two numbers I'm going to give you. Right now, my number is 99. Mm-hmm. And it's not Wayne Gretzky's number that I'm mm-hmm. proud of. It's 99 people that I've placed first job in school, first job in sports, have gone on to be vice presidents or presidents of teams. Wow. Uh, number 99, and huge kudos to him, Anthony Horton. Still remember him when he was a, a young man in Atlanta, Dr. Sutton Combine, saw something special in him, helped place him at the San Antonio Rampage. And now he's an executive vice president of the Arizona Coyotes. Just got named to that position, just left the Bulls. And uh, I'm so proud of Anthony. So I can't wait because there's several people who are right there to be able to say 100 people that I helped place their first job out of school but not to be presidents or vice presidents of teams. And then from a placing of people standpoint, I've placed probably somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500. I can't give you an exact number, but I look back and there's almost, I would say 80% of the places that I go and train and develop their staff, somebody there said, Murray, like I met you at this event. You introduced me to this person and, uh, and you helped make, you changed my life for the better. You gave me that. And it's funny because one of your students blindly reached out to me on LinkedIn, said, hey, I've heard some things about, would you give me 15 minutes of your time? And I, I rewarded that time, said, heck yeah, let me help you. And it's funny, she wants to work in hockey. And I talked to the president of the Indy Fuel and Larry uh, is very interested in having her come and be an intern for, for the team next year. So again, it's like Dr. Bill Sutton told me, and he started this with that first internship story I told you is you know, give people an opportunity and have them make the most of it. And that's where I'm blessed and humbled to, if I can go back and help others have the kind of career that I've had and the life that I've had and the family and everything that I've had, uh, I'm a happy man. Well, sports is so, such a small world too. And it's it is. so interconnected. And, and that's great because this is the second podcast in a row where I've talked with somebody where they're basically the philosophy is, you know, who can I help? You know, yes. that's going to help you get to where you want to be too. Because we absolutely cut through. So, and maybe this is a little bit of an unfair question. So I'll, I'll ask it anyway. I can. All right. What are some of those things you were looking for then in a student or in just somebody who you think, boy, they've got some potential. I would love to just make an introduction or try to help them on their path. Actually, actually I thought I thought for sure you can make an unfair question. That was that was that was a softball. All so right. I uh, the be, you know the best experience though in all of sports is. Being part of the NBA's Teambo group, the team business operation group, we act as an in-house consultant. So every week I would fly up to New York, so I live in Florida, fly up to New York, and then fly out to a team and spend three days with the team. So for me to be able to see every best practice in the league, every worst practice in the league, you would walk into certain teams like I would never work here in a million years and others. So I surveyed all the people in the league. So when I'm looking at candidates, I look for five things. Mm -hmm. Simple. Five, five skills. Ready? Yep. Number one, I want positivity. We work long hours in sports. You spend more time working with your coworkers than you do your family sometimes. So that's critically important. You better find people that are positive, 
the negative. And I truly believe you have a choice. I was just, you know, hit by an SUV. I was in the hospital for six days. Like I could be like, woe is me. No, I'm grateful to be alive. You have a chance to be positive or negative. And I'm going to come back from these injuries better, stronger, faster, not better looking because I wasn't good looking to begin with, but <laughs> I'm going to come back stronger and, uh, and a better person. So number one, positivity. Number two, coachability. People think asking questions is a weakness. It's a strength. Mm -hmm. People that want to be coached, people that want feedback, there's upside. People that think they know it all, people that are cocky, think they're all about themselves, not so much. That's not going to happen. We're looking for people that also have honesty and integrity. Because you know what? There are some unscrupulous people in this business. There's some bad people in this business. But again, if you don't have honesty and integrity, and that's why I've served for the last 15 years on the Baylor Sports Sales uh, Leadership Board, yeah. Dr. Daryl Lanus and Dr. Wakefield, yep. they teach sports ethics. They talk about honesty and integrity. That's why I've played so many Baylor S3 students. It comes from great people like Dr. Lanus and Wakefield who care about their students. The same thing about the Robert, I'm on the Robert Morris board, Dr. Dave Sonoka and Artemis. They care about making people be quality people because if you don't have quality people, it's not going to work. Yep. The next one that we look for is we want people to have uh, great communication skills because if you can't communicate verbally, uh, orally uh, and relate to people, you're going to have a tough time in this business if you can't communicate. And then the fifth one is, is the wild card. And, and tell me what, what your definition of this would be. I look for people that feel that good is the enemy of great. What does that mean to you? My wife and I just had this conversation uh, just a couple of days ago because she's interviewing for multiple jobs and she's really, you know, lover, awesome, amazing woman, just so in her head. Yeah. I didn't do this right. Or I didn't say this. I didn't say, sweetheart, let's right. calm down. Right. It doesn't have to be perfect. You've got the background. You've got the skills. They're interested in you in, for a reason. Be yourself and let's not let great, you know, be the enemy of good. It doesn't have to be a home run. We can win a lot of games on singles and doubles. And um, Absolutely. I don't know if she got the sports analogy, but it's the only way I could put it. Right. I think it helped a little bit. What's, what's interesting is you took the absolute opposite view that I look at. Okay. So, but you're right. Perfect. So it's really twofold. You don't want perfection to get in way with a great. Mm -hmm. So, so many people that are perfectionists, they went out and they, they just set a record time for, they did a, you know, a half marathon, set a record time. And instead of enjoying it, they're like, oh man, I, I, I can be 15 seconds late. They can't enjoy it. That's a problem. So you're absolutely, your point there is right on the money, bingo. There are a lot of people who are like, hey, I work for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I got a car. This is Cleveland Cav. I'm cool. Like I walk in the bar and I got a lanyard. Like, <laughs> man, people like me. Yeah. And you, they, they love the, I want to work in sports versus it's not just being in sports. It's what you do with it. Yep. So I don't want people that want or get cut. If you're use the word comfortable, content, average, mediocre, people that just sort of take plays off, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people that they want to be great. So everybody wants to be great, but it's then when do I do interviews and the sometimes I go communication or sometimes I go work ethic. 
So there's really six characteristics uh, and that's work ethic is the sixth one. And I'll just tell you a quick story of a woman we hired to magic that just blew the work ethic question away. Said to her, you know, you know, tell me about your work ethic. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being, a, you know, your great work ethic, what would you give yourself? She goes, I'm a 10. I'm like, okay, tell me why. Just because I grew up on a 10 acre farm in Ohio and we had a tractor, but I would rather get out and push mow. I'm like, well, first of all, what is push mow? She was like, get behind and actually, I mean, there's something about physically putting in the work, something I really enjoy. And it's something that's very therapeutic and I clear my head and I really enjoy it. And I miss it now that I live here in Florida. So I'm like, okay, you're hired. And <laughs> you can come over every Saturday and mow my lawn. And like, it'll be therapeutic, be good for you. And I don't have to pay a landscaper. But again, it's like, you ask that question. Don't just tell me I've got a great work ethic. Don't just tell me you're a positive person. Give me an example. And that's one thing that I do in interviews is that, that is, is pretty solid. It's like, you can't just BS me because everyone lies in interviews. Yeah. You, you got to be able to back it up. Tell me a story. Give me an example. And those are the kind of people that, you know, when you find that right person and it all clicks, then it's, uh, it's really special. It really is. Well, I can't think of a better place to end this on. We've taken a, a ton of your time, but I, I can sit here all day and, and listen to stories. And um, this has just been a, a great interview and some great, in, uh, some great information for our students. So Murray, we really thank you for your time. I want to thank you for what you do. There's so many professors that are all into the academia and just doing what the checklist says. But I got to tell you, the fact that you're encouraging your students to speak to industry professionals, the fact that you're actively engaged, the fact that you're an advocate, I saw you reach out to the Indy Fuel as far as internships and opportunities for your students. Like you are the reason why your students are going to be have great lives. You're making lives better for them. And without professors like Dr. Bill Sutton, Dr. Hardy, Dr. Dave Sonoka, like I would, who knows what my life trajectory would have been. So like you are the heroes. So anything that I can do for you and your students, happy to help. Well, we certainly appreciate it. And, you know, trying is, is a little bit unique institution. We're not a research institution. We're, we're very much about placing um, students in careers. So um, I work with a fantastic team and, and staff, and it's just a, it's a blessing to be a part of it. So I, I appreciate your time. Well, it's working and your students are great because of you. So we appreciate that as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for our next guest on April 2nd. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Hornbacher for his work behind the scenes today. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.